Welcome everyone. You're listening to Horizontes, Latin America's leadership forum. Our focus is on developing business leadership in Latin America, i.e. the skills and topics that leaders need to succeed. I'm John Price, your host. Horizontes is brought to you by America's Market Intelligence, the leading market intelligence company for Latin America. In today's episode, we're speaking to Kelvin Dushnitsky, former CEO of Anglo Gold Ashanti and president of Barrick Gold, two of the largest mining companies to ever invest in Latin America. I've invited Kelvin to discuss some of the lessons learned while navigating the complex world of a above-ground investor risk, from political interference, to community opposition, to economic volatility. Great to see you, my friend. Great, great to be here, John. Thank you very much for having me. And your, your, your recollection is quite good, by the way, in terms of my, my um, origins. I'll, I'll give you a little more background if that's helpful. Sure. That'd be great. Love to. I think it'd be very helpful before we get into the meaty subjects, uh, learn a little bit about more of who you are. Okay, thanks. Um, well, first of all, you're right, John. I was raised in, in Manitoba, in fact, in a, a small farming community in rural Manitoba. I did my first degree at the University of Manitoba. And I graduated um, from there. I went to University of British Columbia in Vancouver, attended graduate school uh, at UBC. And when I finished that, I joined a, a Vancouver-based consulting company called Rescan. And Rescan was founded and its CEO was a, a gentleman well-known in mining circles, a gentleman by the name of Clem Peltier. And I worked together with Clem for about a decade. Um, interestingly, Clem had come from BHP um, and worked there for a number of years. And so BHP was really our anchor client at, at Rescan. And from that, the company expanded Client list included, I'm going by memory now, but the likes of Rio Tinto, uh, Kennecott, Cypress Amax at the time, Asarco and Southern Peru Copper um, in Peru. Placer Dome was a client, Tech Billiton, quite a long list. And sure. really from junior exploration companies all the way to more, more senior producers. Um, and the company had, had some exposure to the forest sector, which you'd expect in being BC-based. Uh, financial institutions, some industrial business, but the great majority of the business was in the mining sector. And so for me, when I was starting, I guess, I don't know, I was 24, 25 at the time. Um, it, honestly, it's happenstance. I, I wouldn't have known a mine, John, if you had dropped me in the middle of one at the time. But um, it's just kind of interesting how things evolved from, from that point to now. But, but that was the start in terms of the, uh, the background. Well, that makes sense. And in that consulting capacity were you involved in legal matters or was it more broad the, the consulting the, the business was really around a, a number of things first of all kind of all the environmental services and related things associated with getting new projects developed and where i focused principally in that business was on kind of new project permitting um and all the reg the regulatory approvals etc needed to bring new projects on stream that was an area where i spent most of my time and in that consulting uh, decade, were you were those projects or any of those projects you're working on in Latin America? Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, the starting project for us would have been Escondida, BHP's big. The, there was a, a consortium at the time, but BHP uh, first brought us to Escondida. Um, closely after that, I think was um, 
uh, Asarco and Southern Peru Copper, uh, their operations in, in Peru. Um, while I was at ResCan, there was also um, Placer Dome was active and we went with them to various places, including in Venezuela, which was interesting. Another, another uh, Canadian client at the time in Venezuela was a company called Vengold, then a, a Vancouver-based business. Um, and I was also spending a lot of time at that point in northern Chile, uh, northern South America, sorry, with uh, Golden Star, Cambior. These, are, these were projects in Guyana, French Guiana, Suriname. So really across the continent, but it would have been the, that kind of those early kind of anchor clients with, with Barrick that first took us into Latin America. Um, and then in, I guess it was the early 1990s, um, I went back to law school at UBC. Um, when I finished studying there, um, I joined a, a client company uh, by the name of Sutton Resources. And Sutton had two principal assets in Tanzania, Africa. One was Bullion Hulu, which was a gold asset, and the other was Kabanga, a nickel a cobalt asset. And then in, I think in 1999, uh, Sutton was acquired by uh, Barrick. And that was really my first introduction. I, I think I'd done some client work for Barrick along the way, but that was my first introduction to Barrick really in, okay. in the workings of the company. And it was after joining Barrick that I had much more kind of corporate experience in Latin America. And that started with um, the first project I was associated with was a company, a project called, it was then called Alto Chicama. Then the name changed to Lagunas Norte. But this is a project in Peru. And it was, I think it was Barrick's first significant project after Piorina. And Piorina also in Peru was Barrick's, I think, first large project outside of North America. So I was kind of at the early stages of Barrick's kind of venturing into to Latin America. It was, it was very good timing. Um, and, and so that first project I was involved with, um, Laguna Snorke was, was fascinating because I, it, for me, and I think it's a record that's going to stand for a very long time. Uh, that project went from discovery, first drill hole to production in just over three years, Wow! which is basically unheard of. I, I, yeah. I can't ever happening again for a, a project of its size and scale. And it's a great op. And Purina was a great mine. Lagunas was a great mine. And then from there, well, now I'm, I joined Barrick full-time at this point. Um, the next project I had in Latin America was with, again, now in, in Barrick was Veladero. Um, great mine, high elevation in San Juan in, in, in Argentina. So it's high elevation in the Andes, a, a very, very good asset, tier one mine for Barrick and has been for a long time and, and still producing. So that was kind of the introduction and the shift from, from ResCan and the consulting role into Barrick and the kind of the full-time corporate role. When I joined- That's very, that's very interesting because I <clears throat> I was unaware of your decade of consulting and just obviously the the breadth of projects that you uh, were engaged with. Um, that really, yeah, that must have been quite the learning process uh, and very valuable to your future employer, Barrick. Yeah. Great experience. I, I have to say, when I, you know, I look back, well, you know, we're- the foundation where that was built was, was clearly during that 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 decade, and the ability to work with excellent companies and their teams and learn from from sure. them. Sure, that would uh, be hard to replace that. Sure. So you've had the benefit now um, with that decade plus at least two decades and uh, working in two of the biggest mining companies the gold mining world has ever seen. Um, that's three decades of experience. Um, Dozens of projects, uh, hundreds of trips into the region. 
Um, you know, you have the benefit of, of, of looking back and seeing how things developed. What are some of the sort of fundamental paradigm shifts in the industry or in the region or a combination of both that you've seen that have changed the industry? Um, well, this is going to date me a little, John, but I, I think the unequivocally, the biggest thing um, from, from my perspective is, is really the, the introduction and, and widespread adoption of the internet. And I say that it sounds a little odd. I know when it's changed our lives in, in, in so many ways, but you know, when I think back to the early, my, my consulting uh, time, typically when a, when a client would come in, you know, first question they'd want to know is new project, how long is it going to take to get approved and what's the cost going to be? And you could, you could estimate, and, and of course they're, they're interrelated and the longer it takes, typically the longer it costs. And you can understand why that would be meaningful. And at the time, you know, we could we could tell pretty reliability pretty reliably within I don't know I'm going to say three four five six months what the timeline would be and it would depend very much on on a few things first of all obviously the the nature and complexity of the project that was that was part of it but almost as importantly is where it was located so at that time if a project was located in in a kind of remote jurisdiction um, where there wasn't easy access to it you would typically have a, a reasonably, you know, a, a defined timeline and it would be shorter than for projects that would be located in a more urban setting with lots of access and kind of nearby traffic and, and so on and so forth. And, and what's happened and the reason for that is, of course, that, you know, for a more remote project at that time, there was less likelihood of, of people visiting the project, of it being a concern to regulators and others that, you know, if there weren't nearby populations and so forth. And which is all very logical. Um, but what happened with the over the last kind of couple of decades with the with the transparency, the access to real time data, the access to kind of real time visual information associated with the Internet, that's changed entirely. And so and I think for the better, to be honest. Um, and so I, I, I in some ways, I consider the, the Internet kind of the great equalizer as far as that goes. But it also means there's been a bit of a shift in that. You know, where in the old days, you know, you could have predictability around timing associated with a remote project. Now that's changed. And in a lot of respects, a remote project to some is considered kind of more sensitive and more difficult to get approval for because it's in an area that may be untouched. So let's leave it that way, as opposed to an area where there's already some disturbance and therefore, you know, it's considered more, more acceptable. So to me, that's been a, a fundamental change. Yeah, you know, I, I completely concur. And the other thing is that, um, you know, again, within the Latin American context, traditionally, miners relied upon national governments, <clears throat> um, not only for the permitting, but also to be their partner through operations. And if there were disturbances, if there was, uh, you know, if there was troubleshooting to be done, it was the national government, sometimes with the aid of the military, um, to to provide that troubleshooting, that of course sometimes led to abuse. And so, when particularly the advent of smartphones gave essentially cameras to everyone in Latin America, I think seventy percent of the population now has one. Um, everything was transparent. Everything was so. And at the same time, you know, legitimate grievances were were put out in for the world to see. But also people who wanted um, to slow down operations for their own agenda 
now had a powerful tool um, to 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 use as well. So it's it's become such a big challenge. I think something like close to 300 mining and energy projects today in Latin America are either delayed or canceled because of ostensibly community opposition. And again, sometimes it's legitimate grievances and sometimes it's just um, unsubstantiated fears that have been flamed uh, by people with their own agenda and using this hyper-transparent world. But it's been such an adjustment for mining companies to learn this um, as, you know, one of the things I've always found interesting about your background, Kelvin, is that, you know, you're a lawyer by training. Now, I understand you got uh, now better understand you got a, a broad training also through a decade of consulting. But, you know, so many mining executives um, began as mining engineers and mining engineers in those isolated environments, usually in a um a country like Canada or Australia. And so they weren't trained uh, in, in dealing with community and politics and very unpredictable politics, which you often find particularly at regional levels in Latin America. So, um, you know, it's been, as, as someone on the outside looking at this industry very closely, it's been very eye-opening to see it, but also very encouraging to see mining companies adapting to this and really becoming more forthright um, because they understand, you know, th there's lots of pressure on them, not just locally, but from their own shareholders. Um, and also, you know, a genuine, I think, desire to do the right thing. Um, and, and it's been quite a transformation. Well, John, I, I think you're right. You hit on a number of things. And first of all, I'm very encouraged because I see, you know, I think back to where we were 30 years ago. I think of where we are today. Your, your comment, I think, is fair in that if you think historically, you know, who, who, who ran mining companies, if you go back 20, 30 years ago, they were people often kind of technically trained, technically oriented. Um, and in fairness to them, I mean, the world has changed a lot between then and now. And kind of what they were, if, if you will, kind of graded on wasn't necessarily strong kind of social, cultural and, and other skills, call it the softer skills, as they were the hard technical skills. And so that's completely understandable. The good news is, I think that you know, as, as things have progressed, when I look at kind of this generation of mine GMs and kind of senior people in, in, in mining companies, and I've had, I've had very good exposure to that through things like the, the Mining Association of Canada, the, the World Gold Council, the Instant International Council of Mining and Metals. And you see it's a different generation in, in terms of its thinking. And, and I would say without, almost without exception, people leading these companies now are very in tuned to the kind of social dynamic, the cultural dynamic. And that's come from some hard lessons along the way in that you can have the best run mine and the best asset on earth. But if outside the fence, you've got resistance and you've got road closures and you've got protests, et cetera, et cetera. One, from a media and investor perspective, that's obviously very concerning. And two, just from a purely operational perspective, it's very difficult. And I guess the third is, in terms of your own workforce, kind of morale and motivation, et cetera, very challenging. So I'm, I'm actually, I think the industry is in a very good space. And there's is a room to improve, of course, um, but I think the industry is in a good space. And, and again, when I started the comment about the inter internet being the great equalizer, you, you made another point, which is, I think, correct, is that if you go back historically, how did people get access to information about projects? Not just through the permitting phase, but once they're operating. You know, they would be in kind of quarterly or other reports that, that might be published around an operation. A lot of the kind of operating detail isn't included in that. 
just because of the sheer volume of it. Mm. Whereas now, kind of real time data can be available in terms of kind of permit compliance, environmental performance, all the other things that are relevant. And so I think in a lot of respects, it's positive because, you know, when there's a vacuum, it's typically filled with, with either negativity or concern and suspicion. And to the extent companies are able to now fill that vacuum with real data, real information, including visually showing that there's not damage happening on site and damage happening off site, I think it's a real plus. And so using that tool properly, I think it's a really good thing. Has it taken a little while to adapt? Yes. Uh, but I, as I said, I think from an industry perspective, I think, uh, I think we're in very good shape. We hope you're enjoying this latest edition of the Horizontes Leadership Podcasts, a series of conversations designed to inform, instruct, and inspire Latin American business leaders. Entrepreneurs, politicians, business magnates, inventors, authors, subject matter experts, financiers, and cultural icons from across Latin America are among our guests. We hope you find these podcasts as compelling to listen to as we find them interesting to produce. If you wish to also receive our curated reading list of the latest articles, white papers, and interviews we circulate each week, write to us at horizontes at americasme.com. That's H-O-R-I-Z-O-N-T-E-S at A-M-E. R-I-C-A-S-M-I dot com. And now, back to the Horizontes podcast. Now, it's a great point. Now, you the term ESG, <clears throat> Environment, Social, and Governance, um, has really you know, become a groundswell, not only from an operational point of view, but also from a due diligence point of view, looking at a, a potential mine investment. And of course, I bring it up because there's people on this call who aren't from the mining industry, and they may have their own definition of ESG or their own priorities within those three areas, because I do think it's different in different sectors. For mining, talk to us a little bit about the three pillars of ESG, which do you think are the most important and you know, I, 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 it's obviously it has become more important for mining companies, but how and, and how are they acting upon it? How does it impact their the way they look at mines? Yeah, that's a really good question, John, as well. Um, I, I actually think the kind of rising in prominence in, in ESG now is a direct extension of what we talked about earlier in terms of internet, social media, and, and more kind of visibility into the sector and transparency around it. And so... Um, I think that when you, your question, you know, of the three pillars, ES and G, which is, is most important, um, I think they're all equally important, but I, I, I think I'd say this, that, um, first of all, if you don't get the environment piece, right, the rest doesn't matter because you will, you know, the, you, you will de by definition be offside everything else. So you have to get that right. The good news is with technological advances, industry best practices, you know, I, I think we're in a very good position to get that right. And sometimes it's a little more complicated. Sometimes, you know, it takes a little more work, other times not. But, but, but I do think we're at that place. And I think there's a general acceptance with regulators and with stakeholders that if companies, you know, acting responsibly, put in place the right technologies that, that environmental protection can be, can be assured. Now, are there going to be upsets from time to time? Yes. Are there going to be mistakes and missteps? Yes. 
But you know, good companies respond to those quickly. They deal with it and they do everything possible to not repeat it. I think that's that's important. So so of the three, I would I would say that first and fundamentally, you must get the environment piece right. I think that the the comment about kind of the internet and social media has really shifted the importance of the S piece of it, the social, cultural, community, stakeholder. And, you know, just anecdotally, I, I when you think back, um, you know, when I'd be in investor meetings, even five, six years ago, um, then it wasn't ESG, it was EHS, environment, health and safety, but similar issues and challenges. And, you know, back then, those things would come up um, at the end of a meeting, uh, sometimes as you're leaving the meeting, as I don't want to say a box ticking exercise, that'd be unfair. And in certain cases where those were, you know, big issues, you know, with an asset or with a company, then then of course they would have more more attention. But not like now. Today I've been in many meetings where the first topic on the agenda is ESG related, and that might dominate the entire meeting. And you may talk about the other aspects of the business, you know, at the end and and on the way out. And so that's been a real fundamental shift we've seen. And I, I'd say. You know, maybe off a little bit, but I'd say that's really over the last five, six years um, and, and more intensively over the last two or three years, I would say. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that's kind of an important piece. And, and I do think that evolved naturally from the kind of more transparency and the visibility to the business that, that has come with the, with the internet as well. The, the pressures to change, um, which we've talked about uh this world of hyper transparency, the communities, the local governments, um, shareholders. What about what about lenders, project lenders, financiers? How are they shaping ESG into their lending? Are there conditions, penalties? Um, how are they quantifying ESG in how they lend money? Well, I think it's it can be an it, it, it's a very strong filter, and I think they look at now lenders look at the kind of the issues companies may be grappling with. You know, to the same same extent as a regulator, and maybe more. You know, they're putting money at risk, and you know, regulators have pressures, obviously, in terms of they approve a project and something goes badly. Well, then they're they're held to account. But from a lender's perspective, um, the ESG lens and and filter is is a higher crossbar now than it's probably ever been. And so they look right down, you know, granularly into not just kind of the operating parameters, but clearly the social aspects, licensed to operate. Is there community and stakeholder support? How do you how do you demonstrate that you have community and stakeholder support? Because at the end of the day, lenders understand as well. I mean, one, they don't want to be associated with quote unquote bad projects, and two, they don't want to be in a position where there's you know there there, there are optics around this, and so nobody wants to be associated with something that has hmm. you know attracts a, a lot of negative headlines. Fair enough. Fair enough. You know, Kelvin, you and I first met. Uh... Gosh, going back um, well over a decade, I guess, um, when you were overseeing the Pueblo Viejo project in the Dominican Republic uh, for Barrick, and that was for me a fascinating project, um, a very historical mine that had been sort of brought back to life by new technology, um, but also a project that had its own um, baggage and legacy long before Placidorm and Barrick, um, you know, took it over. Um, it was a project with challenges, but ultimately a, a financial success for Barrick. Um, in your mind, what are some of the lessons uh, learned by by Barrick? You know, during the purchase, government negotiations, project development, uh, launch, et cetera, the different phases of the project. 
um, um, that that's a really interesting one, John. Um, you touched on, and, and and again, I forgot that we actually met around PV. Um, uh, I guess a few things. First of all, your um, Barrick didn't acquire PV directly. PV came with the acquisition of Placer Dome, right? Uh, and that was in two thousand five, two thousand six, six seven. I can't recall it precisely. Um, but when we acquired um, Placer, uh, PV was one of the projects in in their pipeline. And at the time, I think it was at feasibility stage. Uh, and so that feasibility work was then completed. I, if I remember correctly, while while the asset was owned by Barrick, um, for me it was very it was fascinating because you know to see a project like that go from feasibility right through all the various stages to to production, uh, you, you don't get to see that a lot. Um, some of the some of the challenges uh, with PV, and you'll re- you'll recall this well yourself, is that you know it was the it was the largest at the time, and I'm sure still is, it was the largest industrial investment in the um, largest foreign investment um, in the country in its history. Yeah. I think it was $3.6 billion, if I remember correct at the time, the, the final number. Um, I'm not, and there's obviously been more investment since. But, uh, and, and in addition to that, uh, the Dominican Republic isn't a, a country where there was a long kind of mining history and culture. Um, although there was there was a nickel mine for Falcondo nickel yeah. that had created in the DR, and I think it was under care and maintenance, if I remember correctly, when we were moving forward with PV. And in any event, that's a project that would have been built in kind of a, a, a different era, different different time, with kind of different um, different constraints. But um, with PV, it was inter- there were a lot of challenges, just given the scale and scope and size of the project. In fact, there wasn't kind of a, a mining culture in history. Um, there weren't a lot of people on the island, obviously, who had uh, the technical experience with mining operations. There was a ton of training and other things necessary. But I'd say that that the kind of the most notable challenges kind of you, you could put them in various buckets. First of all, um, technologically, uh, this is a project that required very sophisticated processing technology. Um, you might remember one of the one of the pieces of that were something called autoclaves, which Barrick mm-hmm. operated. Um, very well in, in Nevada, it's Gold Strike Mine. This is the first time using that autoclave technology, certainly in, in, in a place like the DR. And these autoclaves are kind of high pressure vessels. So you you treat ore at high high um, uh, temperature and high pressure to liberate the gold. But these vessels are very sophisticated. They're huge. If I remember correctly, we they were they were um, they were built, assembled in Malaysia, I believe, and shipped from Malaysia to the DR in specialized um, uh, overseas shipping vessels. When they arrived, we had to have specialized flatbed trucks, articulating flatbed trucks to move them. These are, these are John, there are three or five of them. I think they're the size of like a small submarine. I mean, they're, they're, they're right. a massive. Right. Roads had to be redesigned. Bridges had to be rebuilt. Had to get community support all along the way to be able mm-hmm. to bring these through. And, and it's that's not necessarily it sounds like it's pretty straightforward, but no, I remember, but, yeah, I remember getting through town was a tricky situation. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a tricky thing. It meant, if yeah. you remember at one point we had to we had to agree to kind of um remove a corner of a, a park and then rebuild it and reestablish it and improve on it. And and that yeah. took some time to, to persuade people it could be done safely, which of course it was. But so there was the technological aspect. The other was the 
uh, I would call it the just the general logistics associated with a big project like this in a country that hadn't seen that kind of development. So I mean, imagine some things we could procure locally, but the capital equipment, the supplies, the the um, obviously people immigrating, bringing in kind of expat labor, some of which would stay, some of which would go, um, and everything associated with that, getting it all to site, building the camps and facilities at site. That was a that was a big challenge. The and then I think culturally, I, I touched on the, the point earlier that there hadn't been a history of, of mining in the area. Yeah. Um, and there was a there was a lot of concern um, in the DR, and you'll re, you recall this a couple of things. First of all, it's a, an island known for tourists. So there was a worry that now you start putting large-scale mining in the context of tourism. And even though where the mine's located is quite removed from the tourist yeah. area, to a lot of people, it doesn't really matter. I mean, what mm-hmm. benefit? They're going to see from a mine being there relative what they would get from um, uh, what already exists in, in in the tourist trade, and so as a result of that, um, it was a it was a it took a lot of work to try and kind of win over the hearts and minds of, of, of local populations that the project could be built responsibly, could be operated responsibly, that people wouldn't be negatively impacted from it, that benefits from the project would flow through to the communities. And at that time, one of the challenges, John, as well, and this was kind of the political angle in terms of buckets, was very strong support at the federal level for the project. But there was always some tension that existed between the local communities and province and the national government, because the sense was the company comes in, builds the mine locally, the federal government gets the benefits from it in terms of taxes, royalties, payments, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, there's local hiring and local procurement, but in terms of kind of revenues, the worry was that that never gets redistributed back locally. And so there was tension between the federal government and the local and provincial governments. And as often happens, the companies get caught in the middle. And yeah, so I agree. Yeah. And if a company can't, can't get what it feels it should be getting from a national government, well, the easiest lever is to, you know, cause challenges and issues at the mine, i.e. Road blockades and otherwise, because locally they know well, the government's going to federally is going to have to step in to try and help you know, fix that, so revenues flow again. So that was that was one of the challenges. So I I would kind of put those buckets together, and and so that whole kind of stakeholder piece, um, it was not surprising, but I think it probably took longer than we may have anticipated early on to get kind of local acceptance for the project, and 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 that was. One of the lessons, I guess. The Horizontes Leadership Forum is brought to you by America's Market Intelligence, the region's leading consultancy and advisory firm, serving companies operating in Latin America and Caribbean markets for over three decades. AMI's vast network of consultants located in every major market in the Americas gather vital market intelligence from privileged sources that our industry practice leaders turn into insightful analysis to help our clients, some of the largest investors in Latin America, make vital business decisions. Before you decide to invest, launch a product, choose a partner, enter a market or acquire a business, make sure your decision is an informed one. Find us at americasmi.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-C-A-S-M-I.com. And now back to the Odisantes podcast. Yeah, I, you know, I think you've raised a really, really valid point here. Uh, there's such a difference between a country like Peru, Chile, Guyana, 
where the entire political class is pretty well steeped in the economics of mining, understand that these are projects that take a long time to develop and take a long time to bring economic benefit to the country, but they do. They create huge tax benefits to the country, and that's money that, as politicians, they welcome in terms of their own projects. Um, and when you take a country like the DR, the political class didn't understand mining um, outside of a pretty small number of them. And then I think that the population was neither pro or against mining. They just didn't know much about it at all. But that means that they're open to being, um, their, their minds are open to be molded by who has the strongest narrative. So it becomes a sort of, if you're up against a formidable opponents to a project and they can, you know, legitimately or illegitimately control the media messaging, they can, they can easily um, change public consensus from don't have an opinion on it to suddenly have a very strong opinion on it. And we see that all over Latin America, but in countries that have been through mining and mining projects, they're a little bit more less receptive to sudden changes in, in messaging because they've heard it before. Um, but when you're in an environment like the DR where there isn't a history of mining projects, then people will believe what they're told. And, and, and I think that that's, that can be uh, challenging for sure. Yeah, and it goes, John, to the, I think, a really important point, and that is um, the necessity to engage locally early, very early. I yeah. mean, really, during project design stage, so people locally on the ground feel they have some input into that, to the, to the extent you can, and it's sensible to, to do that. Um, and, and I think the other really important point, and, and a lesson learned in, in, at PV was, um, don't presume that just because of the economic benefits that are going to flow from a project, that that will necessarily equate to kind of wholesale acceptance of it, right. because it, it will help in certain areas, but but not entirely. And to right. some, it has zero meaning. And so you really need to, to spend time, as I said, engaging early, communicating early, being consistent with messaging um, and you know making a commitment, making sure you live up to that commitment. People have very long memories, especially if they feel that commitments were made and, and, and left unmet. Very hard to recover from that. So all the things you just characterized are, are absolutely correct. And some, like, like almost every project, you learn lessons along the way, sure. which you know, should make the next one a little easier and a little better. Sometimes, sometimes that's true, sometimes not. Right. Another interesting aspect is the DR is a very centralized you know, political structure. So there are mayors, et cetera, but there's no states or provinces. And so you don't have that kind of mid-tier political structure that really needs to be given a, a, another level of prioritization. But you have to deal with the entire population of the DR in terms of your PR campaign, because the political class that's actually going to make your life easier, difficult, is actually responding at the national level and not necessarily response to the local. Whereas in a country like Peru, or Argentina, those regional politics become much more in, more important because they actually have levers of power. So, you know how you devise your public relations budget and and strategy, and how you devise your government relations strategy is going to change depending upon the power structure of a particular country. Well, that's right, John. The other the other point to make in, in what you just said is that it's also a mistake to presume that 
just because a project's been granted a permit, you know, and, and approvals from a national level, even at a provincial level, to presume that that gives you the right then or the ability to develop kind of irrespective of anything else is a big mistake. That's right. a starting, you know, it's, yeah. it's people say you have to have that or else there's not even a further discussion. Once you have it, you still have to have the local support and, and kind of uh, community acceptance of the project. And that went to the kind of earlier point about making sure you've engaged early, often, consistently, transparently, kind of, you know, one message um, and be clear about it and, and allow people time to kind of think and understand what's going on, genuinely accept and, and encourage their input. And it's only with that, together with the permit, that you can actually move forward. One without the other, it, you know, we've seen time and time again that you know just results in in, in problematic situations. One hundred percent agree. I might even go as far to say that even if you don't have to run a community referendum, in other words, if you're not obliged legally, um, or if the government regulations don't oblige you to, it might be a good idea to do or at least test the waters um, because. Otherwise, that hangs over you as a kind of a threat. What, what is your thought on, on the use of referendums to gain and galvanize that community support? Well, whether it's referendum or, or I think back to, you know, when I, I go back to the, uh, to the 90s, we used to have regular town hall meetings mm. when we would have, you know, be going through the, the permitting process. And then beyond the permitting process, we continue with town hall meetings, just update everybody on, on what was going on with the project. And in some ways, John, to my earlier point about, you know, what's good about the internet is free and ready access to information um, by, by people who are interested in, in having it. I think at the same time, it's, it's, it's created a, I don't want to say a, a complacency, but um, I think, and I would only speak now for, you know, companies with which I've been associated, I don't think we've done a good enough job of continuing with the kind of um, in-person communication and exchange of information once a project's approved and up and running and built. Everyone gets busy and, and, and of course that happens, but I think there's a lot to be said for, just like you, it's important to engage and have consistent steady communication through an, an appro approval process, I think you have to continue with that exact same approach and treatment when a project is operating. So don't rely on the fact that yes, we publish information and yes, people have access to it, because it's not the same. I mean, there's yeah. nothing better in my view than town halls where you, you invite people to talk about what they like about what you're doing and importantly, what they don't like about what you're doing. Yeah. So to the extent possible, you can fix it. You won't always get that by having information, you know, again, available on the internet. And often when it does surface, it's in the, in the form of a protest or a blockade or other things that you may well have been able to avoid. Sure. We have a great question um, from Monica Ospina, and I'll, I'll sort of summarize it as follows. Um, she's sort of um, sort of implying or inferring in her remarks that the additional concern, which becomes obligations around ESG, um, seems to be impacting both operational stability and the ability to generate enough exploration that brings projects to into development. And that is potentially a long-term uh, issue around supply, you know, will, will hurt supply in the future. Uh, what are your thoughts there? Because I mean, I think 
everyone agrees ESG needs to be taken into consideration, but has it become, or is it our inability to reach a consensus on how to deal with it become a roadblock um, or, or a bottleneck to our ability to keep supply up with demand? What are, you, what are your thoughts there? Well, you know, it's a really interesting, interesting question. Um, I guess my response to that would be, uh, I don't think ESG is, is prohibitive in terms of, of conducting exploration. And I think, in fact, um, it, the, one of the most important things a company can do is ensure that its exploration teams are well-trained culturally yeah. in ESG, et cetera, et cetera. And I say that because, and, and I think in large part, I, I think that's the case. But there certainly have been instances where, you know, exploration teams have, you know, maybe been a little careless, you know, drive through creeks when they shouldn't um, do other things on site, which cause kind of local concerns. And and as opposed to being kind of goodwill ambassadors for, for the company and creating a kind of a, 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 a terrific first step in terms of doing what's necessary to build kind of stakeholder consent, the opposite can happen. So right out of the gate, you're fighting an uphill battle because you know, people talk and it gets around. And if, if the view is that expiration hasn't been conducted responsibly and, and in a, in a um, uh, respectful way, that can have serious implications on, on everything else you intend to do. And not just there, but, but where it tends to spread. And so, um, so I think that's really important. But look, I, I, one thing that's clear is when you look out over the last decade plus, you know, the number of kind of large new deposits that have been discovered worldwide it, it, is, is, not, is not large, you know, counted on one hand. And so what does that mean? You know, clearly it means that um, on a going forward basis, companies are going to have to do everything they can to continue to, you know, operate the assets they have and expand around them to the extent possible. And so partly to the question about exploration around existing operations, I mean, I think that that that's always fundamental. Adding reserves to existing mine life is something that every company is doing all the time, replacing you know production on, on an annual basis and more. So exploration budgets are very much zeroed in on that, as well as Greenfield's exploration. So I, I think done right. I don't think there's a prohibition to it. But again, I think that probably today more than if you think back, you know, 20, 30 years ago, more time up front in getting approvals for exploration, spending time with local communities doing, you know, explaining what the exploration will look like, how it's being conducted, et cetera. There's probably a higher cost bar now for doing that well. And, and when I say cost bar, I don't mean from a regulatory perspective, I mean from a company's ability to gain that social acceptance to move to the next step if they're successful in finding what they, what they hope to find. The Horizontes Leadership Forum is brought to you by America's Market Intelligence. Each year, AMI's most senior practice leaders, led by your podcast host, John Price, are invited by over 50 conference, seminar, and private business meeting organizers to provide their insights, predictions, and opinions concerning the most pressing business trends and challenges of the day in the Americas. To learn more about how your next regional planning meeting or conference can be enhanced by a presentation from AMI's leadership team, visit us at americasmi.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-C-A-S-M-I.com. And now, back to the Horizontes podcast. 
Well, that raises the point in terms of, you know, if you were advising mining companies today and they're looking at a project and they're, you know, what would you tell them in terms of must have? So let, let's assume it's a project that's already developed and you're looking at acquiring it. What are some of the must-haves that a project should already have in place and versus as well as what are some of the red flags that would give you great concern about pulling the trigger on buying a company, buying a mine? Yeah, um, well, I guess a few things. First of all, in terms of must-haves, I think that um, a well-defined and clear mining code has to be number one um, and tied to that kind of clear titling. Uh, process so you know mm. you know you own what what you're acquiring and that that's unequivocal tied to that um uh, rule of law you know, reliable court system that you can you know transparent courts that you can rely on um we're, we're down that, to five countries kelvin <laughs> <laughs> oh, john you're a skeptic um i think that in addition look in, in that kind of vein um a must-have would be a a, a history of kind of consistent treatment of investors, i.e. no sudden shift in, in goalposts and um, or kind of violation of, of stability agreements. That would be, to me, that would be kind of the rank as the top four must okay. have. Okay. Um, a few nice to haves. Uh, one would be certainly doesn't hurt if the, the host country that you're, you know, where, where your, your company is, has a bilateral investment treaty with whatever mm-hmm. company you're investing in. Uh, that's certainly a nice to have. I would say, um, again, that kind of a, as we discussed earlier in the in the PV context, but uh, you know, some historical context or experience with the sector, also nice to have. You know that you'll already be kind of a little way up the curve if 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 that happens to be there. Uh, you asked for two things. What are the must-haves, and then what are what are red flags? Um, I guess some red flags would be well. Obviously, the converse of one of your must-haves. If you, if 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 the jurisdiction has a a history of kind of reversing course, moving goalposts, kind of sudden sudden shifts um, in its policies and or 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 not adhering to its its agreements, well, that would be a definite red flag. Um, and and not and and the other the other thing, John, I just kind of comes to me is, um, well, this isn't a prohibition in any way. But something I think you really want to take time and attention to understand is if you're developing a new project in an area that has kind of is, is very well populated and requires resettlement associated with the new development. Again, uh, there's lots of kind of proven practices and invest, you know, and approaches for how to do resettlement well. But that is an area where if it was me and I was looking at making a, a large investment, I'd really want to understand, you know, the number of people that would need to be resettled, the likelihood they'd be prepared to be resettled, what it's going to take in order to do that. You need to commit the, the time in advance, the time for that process, uh, time subsequent to monitor and, and support communities as, as they've mm-hmm. been relocated. And I think that today more than, you know, you, again, you think back 20, 30 years ago, how that was achieved versus, versus you know, what's required today. That's an area where, again, it, it's not a red flag in, in that you can't proceed. But you better make sure you're prepared to do it right. well and to take the time right. and make the investment that to, to ensure it's done well. Sure. No, it makes makes sense. Um, you know, you you've you've had experience uh with the mining sector in in Africa, I believe also a little bit in Asia. Um 
how is you know and and you're in toronto you're 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 still very much plugged into the the mining global mining community what is the what is the perception um amongst that network that you're part of of latin america versus africa or other you know significant mining investment destinations around the world including you know canada australia and traditional ones um yeah that's always a challenging question, John. It changes, as you know, it's mm. static. But I, I think a couple of things. First of all, um, it's really important not to not to generalize, which we all tend to do. But, sure. but Africa, I think there's 54 countries in Africa and Latin America, I, I, what, 20 countries in Latin America. Yeah, the Caribbean and that mixture now, 30 plus mm. something like that. Maybe That's wrong right. numbers. But, right. but within that, there are going to be there are jurisdictions which are you know time-tested, proven, stable. You can operate reliably presuming you're doing everything you know properly and and and, and operating responsibly and there's def- definitely jurisdictions within each of those you know between Africa and Latin America where at this point they'd be considered more no-go zones um, and that may change again nothing stays stays the same forever and and jurisdictions that have historically been seen as kind of you know most favored nation kind of uh, uh, jurisdictions that changes too so, yeah. You have to be pretty nimble. Um, and I think, though, the other point, John, you touched on this a little earlier, is sometimes it's not even just at, at a kind of country national level. Um, provinces matter yeah. within country. Some provinces can be very kind of mind friendly and supportive. Others just a lot more resistant. And so, you know, you have to decide it. And part of the challenge in, in this business, of course, is you have to go where the good deposits are. So you don't always get to choose you know, which jurisdiction you're in, but you do get to choose kind of how and when you make a, you know, a, a, a large scale investment and ensuring that you've got the, the pieces in place to kind of mitigate risk in that context, I think is, is, is obviously important. Sure. Now you've sat down with lots of governments and also different, you know, uh, branches of government, uh, national and, and subnational levels. Um, and, you know, I think of if, if, if anyone I've worked with, you've probably been through more of those negotiations and really made an effort to understand their point of view, um, but also made an effort to persuade them when you thought that perhaps they were um, at least misinformed, uh, if not lacking stri- strategic um direction on 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 how they engage with mining companies but you know if you were engaged if you were hired by um a mining jurisdiction what are some of the things pieces of advice that you would give them to ensure that they not only attract mining investment but that they attract good mining investment that's going to really help develop their their region um well that's a good question john i think that you know there's no no surprises here but i think first of all ensuring that you've got kind of, as I described earlier, kind of mining code, general kind of regulations and, and operating uh, framework that is, is clear, consistent, transparent, um, that you don't create situations where nothing has to stay the same forever. But what, what is very difficult for mining companies, and, and as you know, John, I mean, most, most mining, they're very capital intensive very high level investment it takes time to recover that capital and there's yeah. you know, really great to balance sheets and everything in between. And so what 
I don't know any, any serious company around the world who is looking for favors in the sense that companies are perfectly happy to have a high crossbar in terms of requiring you know, environmental performance, all the ESG factors we, we spoke about, the need to redistribute the economic benefits of the project nationally and, and through the, through the uh, economy generally. So, so in other words, an equitable sharing of the, the economic benefits uh, of a project. I think that's, that's just you know, a given now and, and all good companies think that way. What, what is a deterrent to investment? So what I would advise those governments is be clear, be transparent, set your expectations and companies will decide, do these make sense for us on a going forward basis? And if so, we'll invest. But if they don't, fair enough, they won't. And I think tied to that, you know, you see a lot of discussion and, and this has been ongoing for years, but discussion around permitting timelines. You know, that's another area where, again, companies aren't looking for relaxed regulations. They're not looking for shortcutting processes. But what they need to know is if you've got a project that will actually stand on its merits, that the engineering is done to ensure that the environmental best practices and technologies that we talked about are in place, that it's developed strong stakeholder relationships and has commitments to its community programs and, and so forth. And it's taken the time and effort and energy and cost, and it's significant cost, to get a project to that point. And then it enters a permitting phase. Again, it, it, no one is looking for special treatment, but there needs to be some certainty that if you meet all those thresholds, you will, one, be, be granted a permit, and two, be granted it in a reasonable amount of time. In other words, indeterminate timelines for permitting are, are really will become prohibitive for mining investment because you know nobody can just take that chance of being in a protracted review especially if again it's not based on kind of the merits of the project so if there's any opaqueness if you will to that permitting process then then that's a challenge and so again the converse of that if i was advising governments again no special no special treatment but be very clear on what's required if the company meets this threshold then it will be allowed to proceed and if not fair enough no one you know, that's a risk the company takes. You know, across several jurisdictions, I mean, Peru's probably the most dramatic. Um, the the number of permits has leapt. Um, I mean, somebody once said to me, it's gone from 20 to 200 in Peru. I have no idea if that's an accurate number. But the point being that is, is this greater number of permits, is it, are these legitimately needed permits or is this just, a lack of coordination by governments to streamline the process, consolidate some of these permits together. What, why, why has the number of permits kind of exploded in so many jurisdictions? What's your sense? Well, I think a couple of things, John. Uh, first of all, I'm not sure if, if you're um, combining concerns over uh, different permitting processes, i.e. places where you have a federal process and when you get through it, you still have a provincial process and is there Good a new overlap and inconsistency? That's always been a challenge. And so I think countries that look to, as Canada is now, harmonizing its approval process, federal and provincial together, I think that's a very smart approach. You know, it just makes sense. Right. Sure. And so that in terms of the number of permits, I think that you know, what matters, there's often, I mean, historically, there's always been a high number of permits. Some of them are simple operating things. You know, you need a permit for pressurized vessels, for example. Well, that's a, a routine permit you should get. It's like when you build a house, you know, you need your basic approval to build the house. Then afterwards, there's all kinds of other little things that, that need to fall into place. 
What hasn't fundamentally changed are the principal permits that allow you to develop or not. And that's kind of where I've been centering. However, to your point, if in that collection of other, what should be otherwise routine permits, there's the risk that not getting one of those routine permits can hold up the overall development or your ability to start production. And you can, for lack of better terms, be held hostage because of one of those. Well, then that is problematic. And it really goes to the earlier point which I raised, which is all companies need is to know exactly what's expected of them and they'll meet that test or they won't. If they don't, everyone accepts the project shouldn't proceed. And if they do, then it must. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, but that's that's how I characterize it. I think the other thing, and I, um, I remember a comment in the past uh, being raised about how there were, mine was building, um, I think, housing structures and they were three feet apart and they should have been three and a half feet, feet apart. And, you know, at the end of the day, there was no harm done to the community. There's no harm done to anyone. There's no health issues or no safety issues, but because it wasn't precisely the code, the regulator sort of stopped the whole project for several days, costing God knows how many thousands of dollars. And whereas in other jurisdictions, you know, there's a degree of reasonable you know this is not threatening anything this is not uh, you know we're going to let it we're going to waive this that but that requires regulators who have experience so i think that the sort of technical assistance or it's not enough to just say okay you're a regulator and you're in charge of of enforcing x mining code but actually training those people on the reality of 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 structure uh, or, or, of the of the issues they're regulating um, I think is something that I've seen time and time again, not just in mining, but in several sectors, because a lot of these positions are politicized. They're, these are new people every four years, as opposed to technocrats that are trained and stuff and remain on the job. You get that kind of inflexibility around enforcement that uh, becomes unreasonable, especially when you're trying to build a, a small city in a very remote part of the world, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, John, look, I mean, I, I know what you're saying. It's almost the no good, no good deed goes unpunished scenario. But look, right. I, I think everything you said is is right. I, I think, though, if, if I were involved in that situation, I mean, I guess the question I'd be asking myself is, OK, the code was three and a half feet. We built three feet. Why didn't we build three and a half feet? Number one, I mean, maybe there's a good reason for that. Right. But would it have made sense to go back and explain, listen, here's why we're doing it. Can we get that done first? And often again, I, I you're right. And I get it. You know, people are trying to do a good thing and, and go forward and who would expect that that would even be an issue half a foot. But I, I think there's, there's so many variables we can't control and unknowns we can't control to the extent we can deal with things that we can't control like that and ensure we're doing everything to code, then, you know, it obviously argues for, for doing that, but, but you're right. I mean, it does need to be a bit of a give and take on both sides. And I think that's why, you know, if you think of, of companies operating and taking that good neighbor philosophy, you know, how would you expect to be treated by your neighbor? Right. Um, you're doing renovations to your house and you had to tweak a little bit here and there. You have a good neighbor on the other side. Well, they're probably going to let, let you get away with it. You don't have great relationships with a neighbor, maybe so, not so much. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It comes back to uh, building that goodwill from the very beginning. Yeah. 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 And you're always, but there will always be one-off situations like you, you just described. You, you hope that that's not the overwhelming majority of them. Sure, sure, sure. We have one interesting question from um, Raziel Zizman, who I think you know. Um, 
And he's he's interested in your opinion about Saudi Arabia, which has become a, a jurisdiction that is really become interested in promoting mining and seems to have taken some interesting and positive steps, some pretty logical steps in terms of developing themselves as mine jurisdiction. What is your sense if you if you have an opinion on Saudi Arabia in terms of what they've done well and maybe what still needs to be done? Yeah, I do actually. And Brazil, nice to uh, nice to hear from you. Um, look, we I was involved when we were building a mine called Jabal Said Copper Mine in Saudi Arabia, and our partner was Madden State Mining Company. It was a very good experience, by the way, through the negotiating piece with with Madden. We brought them in as a partner, and and subsequently, um, and. Yeah, I have been kind of tracking what's happening in Saudi, and I think in in very much in a positive way, both in terms of kind of the cultural shifts that are happening. It takes time, but but there's no question. I mean, they are serious about diversification, expanding more into the uh, into the sector, and I I think they will um, take a thoughtful approach. I think they're going to be successful. So I noted um, a recent announcement just this week. I think that Barrick is doing more in in Saudi. Um, with Madden, I believe. Um, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, I, I'll tell you, the other thing is that from my experience dealing with the uh, with the state mining company, Madden, they were very keen on kind of adopting uh, worldwide best practices. So there was, there was never a discussion around cutting corners, et cetera. And I know initially the skepticism is, well, are you in Saudi? Because once you have a government partner, you just do what you want. That was 100% not the case. They want things to be done the exact opposite to a very high level. And I think that's encouraging. Yeah, I think there's a new generation of leadership in in, in, in the entire um, Gulf that, uh, first of all, we're schooled abroad um, and do want access to best practices. Absolutely. And by the way, they can afford them. Exactly. (laughs) Kelvin, um, you know, we could, there's so much we could discuss here. Um, the time has flown by, uh, and in, in, in respect to your time and the time of others who've dialed into this, I, I, I'll, I'll leave us, uh, leave the discussion at that, but really appreciate your time. Thank you for sharing your insights. Um, you know, it's just, it, I don't think people like you appreciate just how much you know and how valuable it is to share that knowledge. So I, hopefully this has been a useful venue for you to reflect on, on your own career. And, and I certainly know it's been valuable to those dialing in. So thank you for your time and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Well, it's very, very charitable of you to say, John, thank you. You're gracious as always. And, and thank you for anybody who, who took the time to listen today. I'm, I'm surprised you did, but, but thank you very much in any event. Appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you for joining us for another Horizontes podcast where we discuss key topics and challenges facing Latin American business leaders, featuring expert guests from a variety of fields and backgrounds. Horizontes is brought to you by America's Market Intelligence, the leading Latin American market intelligence consultancy. We gather the research, conduct the analysis, and form the recommendations in the bespoke fashion that companies require to make wise business decisions Latin American and Caribbean markets. You can find Horizontes on all major podcast directories like Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and more. Or you can visit our website, americasmi.com, and look for Horizontes under the Thought Leadership menu.